Forgiven to be filled. Several years ago in Canada, I had just completed a seminar lecture on God's forgiveness when a man approached me and introduced himself. He looked about 60 years old, but it was hard to be sure because of his haggard appearance. His eyes were dull and lifeless. His face was covered with deep crevices leading down to his slack mouth, and his shoulders were stooped. When he spoke, his voice came forth in a low drone. Mr. George, he said, I really want to believe that God forgives me, but I don't seem to be able to accept it. How can you know that God's forgive, that God forgives your sins? Edward, I just spoke for over an hour on God's total forgiveness in Christ. Were you here for the lecture? Yes, I heard what you said, but I just can't believe that God really forgives me. Wondering if Edward was really a Christian, I took some time to find out. He told of how he had accepted Christ as his Savior and Lord at the very early age. Edward's understanding and answers were all solid regarding his personal faith in Christ. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ lived in him and that he was going to spend eternity in heaven after his death. The source of his doubts had to lie elsewhere. How long have you been struggling with these doubts about God's forgiveness, I asked him. Ever since I was a child, Edward said sadly, when I was young, I did something very wrong. Every day since then, I have begged God to forgive me, but I just can't believe that he has. I could hardly believe my ears. Edward, how old are you? 62. Do you mean to tell me that you have been begging God to forgive you for over 50 years? He looked me in the eyes with that helpless expression and nodded. I should have been serving him for those 50, but I have been wasted my life. That's why I'm asking you if you think God could ever forgive me. We already have everything. At the time, I thought that Edwards was a unique story. I have since come to know that many, many Christians share the same bondage. They have committed some sin that seems to always be a part of their present. Even as the years roll by, it is constantly on their minds, like an ever-present black cloud hanging over them. After a while, guilt becomes an accepted part of their lives. To lose it would be almost like parting with a precious family heirloom. A Christian like this will never mature. He will never, as long as he is held in bondage of guilt over a past sin, experience all that Christ has intended for us to experience through his indwelling life. Let me express this is this in a straightforward manner. Until you rest in the finality of the cross, you will never experience the reality of the resurrection. Second Peter 1, 3-9 is a passage that perfectly illustrates this principle. It begins with this incredible news. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promise so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So many Christians start out with Jesus Christ and then go looking for something better, some kind of advanced Christianity. 
we will stray into all kinds of tangents looking for the something more that will transform our dull existence into spiritual reality. Sometimes it's a desire for something deeper. But Second Peter 1.3 says that we have received how many things? It says everything we need for life and godliness. Christian maturity is not starting out with Jesus, then graduating to something better. The Christian life is starting with Jesus, then spending the rest of eternity discovering more and more of what we already have in him, more and more of the wonders of this person in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. This new life, according to 2 Peter 1, 4, is translated into our experience through our having become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, it is through the resurrected life of Christ, which has been given to you and me, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. Trusting that it is done. I was teaching this recently on a call-in radio program and was asked this question by a listener. If it is true, as you say, that every Christian has received everything he needs, then why don't many Christians experience it? Even Christians who know about Christ living in them, to be specific, someone like Edward. Let's continue in this passage in Second Peter 1. After teaching that we have everything we need in Christ, Peter exhorts his readers to press on to maturity in verses 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to add your, to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, knowledge and, and to knowledge, self-control, into self-control, perseverance, into perseverance, godliness, into godliness, brotherly kindness, into brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one attains these qualities at a single stroke. They are marks of maturity that we will be growing in as we learn to live by faith in the indwelling Lord Jesus Christ. But what about an Edward? Ineffective and unproductive are two words that describe his life pretty accurately. What is it that can block this process of maturity from happening? The answer is given in verse 9. But anyone who does not have them He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. There's the answer. It's another variation of the theme. If truth sets you free, then it is error that binds you. In this case, a failure to recognize and trust that the sin issue between you and God is over will effectively stop your spiritual growth in Christ. It's really not complicated. The process of spiritual maturity is simple. Our learning to turn more and more areas of our lives over to Christ through faith. The past is over. The future isn't here yet. Therefore, living by faith can only be done in the present. If Satan, on the other hand, can keep us preoccupied with the past through dredging up our feelings of guilt over past sins, then we can never be free to trust Christ as we walk through life today. 
Besides, how can we trust Christ with our lives if we are unsure of his attitude, of his attitude toward us? Most of us have been taught from an early age that God is holy and hates sin. If I have committed sins, how can I approach him with confidence? The only solution is understand in is an understanding of and a total trust in the fact that Jesus Christ did it all at the cross that the sin issue between man and God is truly over. We must come to the biblical conviction that the forgiveness of our sin is not just some heavenly bookkeeping that we enable will that will enable us to slip into heaven someday. God's forgiveness is a present reality that enables us to concentrate on walking daily with a loving and accepting God who desires to live through us. Ephesians 1 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with his riches, with the riches of God's grace. Forgiveness is not something we might have or have on some days and not on others. Forgiveness is something that Christians live, that the Christian lives, excuse me, that something the Christian lives in continually, just like we live in and breathe the air. In him, we have the forgiveness of sin. It is written in the present tense. The past is past. What a tragedy to look at a man like Edward who believed that he had wasted his life because of a single past failure. He was in bondage because of an error. The solution was truth. Edward, I said, do you have any children? Yes, he answered, three. Did any of those children ever do anything wrong? Well, yes, many times. Did you forgive them? Yes, of course. Edward, what if one, on one of those occasions when your child did something wrong, you forgave him and he refused to believe you, but came every day bringing up the subject again? Daddy, are you sure that you forgive me for that? On and on every day. Are you sure you forgive me, Daddy? Are you sure? Tell me, Edward, as a father, how would that make you feel? Edward creased his brows in pained expression. It would break my heart, he said. Then, Edward, didn't you think it, it, don't you think it about time you stopped breaking the heart of God? Do you remember how John the Baptist identified Jesus? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't you see, Edward, that God made his son become sin for you so that you could become righteous in him? Don't you think it's about time you stopped insulting the Spirit of God who has written dozens of promises in the Bible that teach that he has forgiven all your sins once and for all? Edward squinted and cocked his head in thought. I never thought about it that way, he said. Edward, look at this, I said. I pointed him to Colossians 2, 13 through 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. According to this, I continued, how forgiven are you in God's sight? Totally, he answered.
Does God hold any accusation against you? No. Do you see why, I asked? It's so that you can concentrate on the other half of the gospel, that God made you alive with Christ. You've been totally preoccupied with the thing that God is finished dealing with, sin, with the result that you've totally neglected what God is trying to do with you today, teach you about life. Now I see what I have been doing, Edward said. I feel so guilty about doubting God. Now let's not start again, I said. Next you're going to beat yourself with guilt because you've been feeling so guilty. Edward laughed. It was the first time he had so much as cracked a smile. Edward, don't you see that every one of us would be doomed except for the unbelievable mercy and grace of God. He had to do it all because we were totally helpless to do anything for ourselves. He knows all about you and your deepest failures. What he wants you to do is to rest in what he has done through the cross, to put it to bed once and for all, so that you can begin to experience what he has done through the resurrection. Edward looked long and hard at Colossians 2, 13 and 14 in my Bible. Finally, he said, I'd like to pray. Closing his eyes, Edward prayed, Lord Jesus, all these years I've thought that you have hated me because of my failure. I've asked and begged you to forgive me over and over, and I've seen myself as a total failure. But today I'm going to start trusting in your promise. You have heard me ask you for forgiveness, my sin." Ask me, excuse me, you have heard me ask you to forgive my sin for the last time. I won't insult you and your grace again. Now from this day on, Lord, teach me what it means that you live in me. In the years that I have left, I'm yours to use however you want. I never forgot Edward's prayer because it was one of the first times that I have seen a man's Continents literally changed before my eyes. Edward turned in his legalism lines for a grace face. He looked years younger, even as he looked up at me with his eyes bright and shining with tears. Edward became free from the bondage of guilt through seeing and trusting in the completeness of Christ's work on the cross to deal with our sins. Therefore, he finally became free to experience the life of Christ which had in fact been his since his conversion many years before. His life perfectly illustrated the principle of Second Peter 1.9. Until you rest in the finality of the cross, you will never experience the reality of resurrection. Saved so we can live. Satan has done a masterful job of keeping the Christian world preoccupied with the things that God has dealt with once and for all. Sin and and ignorant of the thing that God wants to be preoccupied with, life. This is no in, in no way means that we are to minimize what Jesus did on the cross. Thank God for that. But it is only when we understand that the ultimate goal of salvation was the restoration of life that we can truly appreciate the purpose and meaning of Christ's death for us on the cross. The process of canning is an excellent illustration of the two parts of the gospel. Let's say that you are going to preserve some peaches. What is the first thing that you have to do? Sterilize the jars. 
why the process of sterilization so that the contents of the jar, the peaches, will be preserved from spoiling. Imagine a husband coming home and finding his wife boiling jars in the kitchen. What are you doing, honey? Sterilizing jars. Why are you doing that? The husband asked. I just like clean jars, she answered. The husband is clearly at a loss. What are you doing next? He asked, keeping them clean. The story doesn't make much sense, does it? You have never seen anyone decorate his kitchen with a sterile jar collection. No, the only reason to sterilize jars is because you intend to put something in them. We would never expect to find a person involved in only half the process of canning, just cleaning jars, but we have done this exact thing with the gospel. We have separated God's sterilization process, the cross, from his filling process, Christ coming to live in us, his resurrection. The Christian world, to a large extent, has been guilty of teaching half the gospel, that is, the cross of Christ, which brought us forgiveness of sin, but by separating forgiveness of sins from the message of receiving the life of Christ, we have not only missed out on experience in life, but we have lost sight of the purpose of forgiveness in the first place. The reason that God had to deal once and for all with sin issue was so that we could be filled with Christ without spoiling. As a matter of fact, there is one final part of the canning process. After sterilizing the jar and filling them with the fruit, the jars are sealed. Sealing keeps the good things inside and the bad things that would spoil the contents outside. We read in Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Cleansing, filling, and sealing a wonderful picture of salvation. Once for all, once we see that the goal of salvation is the raising of the dead men to life, it is easy to see why Christ had to deal with sin issue once and for all. This is exactly what the New Testament teaches from beginning to end. For example, notice these verses verses from three different writers. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Romans 6.10 But now he has appeared once for all all at the end of the ages to do away with the sin by the sacrifice of himself hebrews 9:26 for christ died for sins once for all the righteousness for the unrighteous to bring you to god he put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit 1 peter 3:18 sin is covered The message of God, complete, 100% forgiveness in Christ, has been a controversial, mind-boggling subject for nearly 2,000 years. To prepare the way, God gave Israel the law of Moses with its sacrificial system. Even though these sacrifices were God-ordained, no one was ever made right with God through them. Instead, they were merely a picture of Christ and his finished work on our behalf. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Hebrews 10.1 
Forgiveness was different under the law, also called the Old Covenant. It was a good news, bad news situation. Let's say that you are an Israelite living under law. All year, God is keeping a record of your violations of the law and the entire nation as well. All year long, you feel the guilt of your sins. You live in fear of God's punishment, which was threatened for transgressions of the law. But the great day of atonement is coming, the annual day of fasting and praying and confessing your sins. The day each year when the perfect bull is sacrificed on behalf of the nation, the one and only time that a single mortal man representing the whole nation can enter into the most holy room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, which is represented, which represents the very presence of God. Taking sacrificial blood, the high priest fearfully enters behind the veil and there sprinkles the blood which covers the nations and your sin for the previous year. Two goats are sacrificed as well. One is slain at the altar. The other called the scapegoat becomes the subject of an unusual ceremony. Elders of the nation place their hands on the head of the goat, symbolizing transfer of the nation's sins to the animal. Then before thousands of witnesses, Lining the streets, the scapegoat is driven from the city out into the wilderness, symbolizing the removal of your sins. You watch with relief and thanksgiving the innocent animal symbolically taking your guilt away. What a relief. That's the good news. What's the bad news? Tomorrow your sins begin adding up again. Next year there will need to be another sacrifice, and the next year, and the next. God graciously gave you the system gave this system to Israel as a means for a man to experience relief from guilt. He experienced under the law. The key Old Testament word is atonement, which means covering. Those sacrificial offerings did indeed cover sins, but they could not take them away because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 A man under the law could enjoy the blessing of God's forgiveness, but the system provided no final solution. It is similar to the use of a credit card, which enables a person to have the benefit today of the coat he wants to buy without paying cash. That's the good news. But the bad news is that somebody is going to have to pay the tab. The card didn't pay for the coat. It only transferred the debt to an account that account will stay, still have to be paid. Sin is taken away. Then in God's perfect timing, Jesus Christ has introduced to Israel by John the Baptist, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From that point on, the finished work of Christ is presented in the New Testament in total contrast to the old system. And by God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, Once and for all, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, 10 through 12. Relentless. The New Testament hammers home the message that Jesus Christ offered himself as an off, a sacrifice for all time. When will we believe it? 
In contrast to the Old Covenant, priests who are pictured as standing and making continual sacrifices, Christ is shown as having sat down. Why is he seated? Because it is finished. John 19.30 The writer of Hebrews reaches the climax of his argument in 10.14. Because by the one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, Jesus Christ has done it all. I find that few Christians can read that verse without flinching and trying to water it down. It's too bold, and the implications are too threatening. Notice that it doesn't say we act perfect. This is talking about identity. But the Bible says that through Jesus Christ, we have been made totally acceptable in the eyes of the holy God. I never forget, I'll never forget a conversation I had one time with a pastor of a certain denomination that teaches that you can lose your salvation. The more we talked, the more obvious it became to me that this man really did have a good handle on grace, on the grace of God, at least intellectually. Finally, I looked him right in the eye and I said, Jim, you know the word of God? You also know how great a work our Lord did at the cross. I think you know too much to really believe that a born-again Christian can lose his salvation. A sheepish, sly grin grew over Jim's face, and then he said, You're right, Bob. Jesus Christ has done it all. There's nothing more that needs to be done or can be done to deal with man's sin. I do know that once you're born again, you can't be unborn. Then he turned serious. But how could I ever keep my people in line if I taught them that? They would just take that message as a license to sin. So I don't teach it. I really wonder how many other leaders in church history have gone the same, have done the same thing out of abject fear. What will the people do? The tragedy is that their fear is unnecessary. If they are teaching the entire gospel, not the cross and forgiveness of sins alone, but the cross plus God's gift of the resurrected life of Christ. God said in the new covenant, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Hebrews 8.10 If salvation was only forgiveness of sins without a changed heart, yes, we would probably take it as a license to sin. But not when Christ lives in us. When we are learning to experience the abundant life that Christ has promised, we become preoccupied with our daily relationship with him, the one who loved us and gave his life for us so that he could give his life to us. But we absolutely have to settle the finality of the cross in our own minds, or we will never be free to discover and experience and enjoy the reality of the resurrection, real life restored to man.